Uh, when Rav Shames asked me to explain to you what happened on Yom Yerushalayim, I realized as I started preparing, probably should have told Rav Shames this, that I, I, I kept going back and back. And the more I thought about what it meant to explain it to students at Midrash and Arova, the more I realized I can't just show you what happened in 67. And I felt that you guys have a particular relationship with Yerushalayim, which is, in all of Am Yisrael, incredibly unique. There are very few Jews on earth in the last 3,000 years who have spent more time in Yerushalayim. Definitely very few have spent this much time in lockdown. But even without the lockdown, if you think about how many Jews in the history of our people have spent as many hours, even sleeping unconscious, in Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, you are among the unique of Am Yisrael. And so I felt, as I was teaching it, I felt a little bit guilty starting in the 20th century. But we're really here to prepare for tomorrow. So I really, most of what I want to talk about is that modern day event and why why Am Yisrael responded as if a miracle had occurred because a miracle had occurred. But you of all people, you of all people, I couldn't just start in the 20th century. And so I'm going to do something which is what a history teacher should never ever do. I'm going to very quickly go through 3,000 years of history, and then we're going to take our time as we get to the modern period. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I tried. I couldn't do it. Not to Haroba. Not to Haroba. Because you'll appreciate this in a way that no, I don't think other people will. I'm going to give you the biography of a city, a mini biography, a quick, less than a Wikipedia survey of the history of the city that'll connect you to, I think, not only times, but also places like you know better than most people, to geography and architecture that you will recognize. And the truth is, Sometimes when you're out with a tour guide, they tell you this, this, and this, and you pick it up and you hear it, but it doesn't process well. I know for me, I'm the kind of learner, if you give it to me in one context, in a timeline, it makes a lot more sense than hearing here, here, here. So before you're on your line, forgive me for taking the beginning part and doing a little bit of our relationship with this city. Like I said, 3,000, well, 3,500, maybe I'm pushing. 3,500 years, and then we're going to look at the 20th century. And also to emphasize what Rav Shane says, I don't want to just start in 67. I want you to see what Yerushalayim looked like before 67. Something that's maybe hard for you to imagine. Now we have to realize that the history of Yerushalayim is very, very complicated. Very, very complicated. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, on a National Geographic or on some documentary, they always refer to Jerusalem. You know, you have those narrator voices. A mosaic of cultures. <laughs> Home to me. It's not that it's not true that so many cultures have left their inventory. It is true. It is true. And it makes the story complicated. And it makes us sometimes not appreciate our unique relationship to it. So to go through this story, we have to go through a very complicated timeline. We live in a very strange piece of real estate that has a complicated history. 
Yerushalayim was settled long before we got here, long before Avraham Avinu. Very, very early. I don't know about Stone Age in this area, in other areas of Eretz Yisrael, but certainly in the Copper Age, in the early Metal Age, we see that people already started moving here. In the Bronze Age, it, it's a permanent city. This is, would be a thousand years before Avraham Yitzchak and Yaakov. Why is it such a good location? Well, mountains with an easy water source. There's the Gichon Spring in very fertile land. It's very attractive. In Breshi, when Avraham meets Malkitzedek, Melech Shalem, Kohen El Elyon. There's already a city here. Now, whether that person was a monotheist or not, that's a different question. Probably in his head, as a Canaanite, I don't know that he understood about Avraham's understanding of monotheism. But there's already, Shalem is probably already Yerushalayim. So in Avraham's time, it's a thriving city that has some sort of Kohen who leads it. We know that it's conquered and settled by the Yevusi of the different Amamim. The Yevusi hold this city for a long, long time until David, meaning Yoshua, no Yerushalayim. All of Shoftim, we don't really have Yerushalayim. It's David who decides he wants to turn this into a Jewish city. Why is that so advantageous to David? First of all, first of all, it's just in Binyamin. David has already for seven years been the king of Yehuda, but not of the Ten Shvatim. For him to keep his capital in Yehuda would be a smack in the face of the northern Shvatim. He has to move north. What if he moves all the way north? Well, now he's very far away from his base in Yehuda. So he needs something that's close, but still in Yisrael. So that's a nice advantage of this city. As I said, for the same reason everybody wanted this city. It's geographically very, very useful. And, of course, not only is he going to take out one of the non-Jewish centers that's still being held at this time from the Yevusi, but he's not taking anyone's already Jewish city and making it the capital. He's taking a non-Jewish city and turning it, well, he didn't have the word Jewish, but we would call it Jewish. And he's going to be the king from there. He's going to make a new city a capital as far as the Jews are concerned, so no Jews can say, oh, our city became the capital. And this is more or less what it looked like. How do we know this is what it looked like? We don't know. This is what historians and archaeologists have put together based on what they've uncovered. And the more we go, the more we uncover, the more accurate and the more updated things like this show. We are, let's say, around here. In the time of David, that's not yet part of the city. The city goes down the hill. We know that there was an internal, it's funny, in Sefer Shmuel, it says, and people didn't really understand the pasuk, David tells his men, who will go through the Tzinor and capture the city? And archaeologists found, and we're not sure exactly how it works, but we do know that there are pipes, not pipes, that the caves underneath where you can get to the water have ways to get access through the mountain. <coughs> and some crazy archaeologists decided they would try to climb up to see if you could, and you can. So we don't know exactly what it was, but it does seem like we now have an idea of how David's soldiers got into Yerushalayim from the Yebusi. They may have climbed up the waterway, if, that, if that's what the Pasuk is saying. And once you have soldiers inside who can open the gate, then the walled city doesn't really help. 
That may be how David conquered the city. Shlomo already, we know, David sets off this area for the Beit HaMikdash. Shlomo builds a Beit HaMikdash here and attaches it to the city. And so Yerushalayim goes into the area that we think of as Harabayat already in the time of Shlomo. And by the end of Bayat Rishon, it's already built out west. Do you know that place, uh, what's there? When you go out to like the Chorvis Square area, and then there's that little, as you go towards the Shuk, what's there? There's like these little restaurants there. It's past that like Milchik Cafe, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And then there's like this little, I don't know, it was like a fruit stand, I don't know what's there now. You know what I'm talking about? And then next to that, there's that wall. You look down, and there's that wall. And tour guides always make such a big deal about that wall. And they go, we have found Babylonian spearheads and arrowheads. And you're like, you know right. It's a wall. Like, okay. Right? When you first heard it, and you're hot and sweating, the tour guides go, oh, amazing. The reason the tour guide's excited is, if you're a history nerd, there was a very big question how big Yerushalayim got in Bayerisha. And when they uncovered that wall and found Bavli weapons, that settled the question. If the Babylonians were fighting by that wall over there, that means Yerushalayim was at least that big in Bayerisha. Some historians said, no, no, they never built out that far in Bayerisha, only Bayerisha. Now, you still don't necessarily have to care. You can still roll your eyes and say, who cares? But it is kind of cool that one of the things we get from coming back, and this, I think, does excite everyone, is that we start uncovering and solving questions. Suddenly, these things, it could be a pasuk in Shmuel about how to conquer the city. It could be a question about our history. And suddenly, oh, well, there's the answer, because we're here. And that's an amazing feeling. You all feel that. Even if you sometimes think the tour guide's rambling on, there is something very cool. That area where David and Shlomo had the city, is this area today. This area, when you read about conflict, political conflict in the neighborhood called Silwan, that's what the Arabs call it, it's mostly Arab, but because the, there's the archeological problem, have you guys been to the Ir David archeological digs? And you know that there are also Jews moving into that neighborhood, that's that controversial neighborhood. The Arabs feel it's our neighborhood we've been living here. The Jews feel it was ours 3,000 years ago and we're just getting in touch with our roots. That's conflict. We also know that archeologists have dug up, not necessarily here in Yerushalayim, but in Jordan, Ammoni leaders writing down in stone, praising how great they are, that they've defeated kings from Beit David. Which means, that also solved for historians who wondered if David was a myth. Historians no longer think the idea of the Davidic dynasty was a myth. Because they know that our neighbors were talking about when they beat us. Usually when we get reference in our neighbors' cultures, it's because they beat us at something. And they're bragging. So in this particular case, they're bragging that they beat the king of the house of David, of Beit David. So historians say, oh, at least by the time you get to the 8th century, 7th century BCE, you see that they call the king of Yehuda the descendant of David Amela. So this idea existed even in our neighbor's culture. We really don't know what Shlomo's Beit HaMikdash looked like. Our descriptions are uh, uh, very, very vague. But we do know, of course, that in 586 BCE, the Bavlim destroyed it and destroyed most of Yerushalayim. And you've been to places 
Mostly we encounter when we go around things from Bayat Sheni, but there are still remnants from Bayat Risha. Certainly in Ir David. It's a powerful feeling. You have to You have to put your head in history. I know I'm joking when I talk about how like tour guides sometimes you roll your eyes, but it is worth becoming the kind of person who gets excited by that, I think. And for that, you have to realize what it means to be the link in the chain. And that, only, that not only connects you to 3,000 years in your past, but it also connects you to 3,000 years in your future and makes you realize that you have to do what you have to do so that some kid sitting in this room 3,000 years from now can have some I don't know, guy with a holograph showing you whatever, however that works, beaming into your brain the images. I don't know what it would be 3,000 years from now. But we have to be as important to them as they are to us. We know that the Persians replaced the Bavlin, that Koresh allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild a second Beit HaMikdash that we know from Sefer Ezra was not as impressive. We know that Ezra and Nehemiah get the culture in the city more appropriate for Jews because after a few decades it started to sort of shift and they take the center of Jewish life back from Bavel to here in Yerushalayim. Up until Ezra and Nehemiah, really the center of Jewish life was really in Bavel. They turn it back home. And the city starts to get built out, especially under Nehemiah. He makes sure that this becomes a Jewish-gated city where people can live. And during Bayat Sheni, Eretz Yisrael becomes an independent Jewish kingdom after the events of Hanukkah. Yehuda takes over, his brother Yonatan takes over, his brother Shimon take over, and of course, we have been pulling things out of the ground from here. These are almost commonplace. You can buy coins from the Hasmonean kings, from our forefathers, for like $15 on eBay, because we're finding so much of this history here in the ground in Yerushalayim. The Romans come, and it's under the Romans. The Romans appoint Herod. Herod, you always hear about on tours. Tour guys love to talk about him. He is super interesting. The more you read about it, this period, the more interesting it is. We're not doing that today. But you can even see the Herod's buildings. Why do tour guides get so excited about Herod? Because if you go to that wall, you're looking at something. If you go to Ir David and they say, here's what was here, you can't really see it. Things that Herod built, you can still see. Partially they're somewhat younger, but partially they're so sturdy that you can actually see what it looked like. You can imagine when you walk past the southern wall, you, could, you can imagine the Zugot walking down the street, Hillel and Shammai, in that Bayat Cheney street. You can see where the little shops were. You can see where this fancy bridge was. Herod turned Jerusalem into this amazing modern city. He wanted it to be like this big place that even Romans would want to visit, and they did. We have from the time that Herod was king. You know, today you have like the travel channel. So they had like books that you would get, travel books, that if you lived somewhere and you couldn't travel, you would buy these. And we have Roman tourist guides, Roman tourists talking about what it was like to come and visit Herod's Jerusalem, what an amazing city it was, what it was like to be here on Pesach and watch the Avodah that the Jews would do, how interesting it was. And it was, and you can walk down this street today in the Davidson uh, Center down there, and you can see the remains of Robinson's Arch. And if you go to the Israel Museum, you could see this model of how the city expanded and expanded under Herod with incredibly palatial, fancy neighborhoods here for the rich, 
with poor neighborhoods here in the lower area where Ir David was more or less. And it's constantly expanding and expanding, getting bigger. With the astonishing Temple Mount that Herod literally redid the geography, the topography. He really changed the whole shape of the mountain to build this sprawling complex. Because I'll say this on Hedgen would meet here. Herod lived here. He liked to have nice houses. He also liked his houses to be fortresses in case the people turned against him because he was very paranoid that the people hated him. But only most because I think most people hated him. Harabaya itself, which if you just think, I'm not an architecture expert, but there must have been something very, if you think about, if you were coming, let's say it was Bikurim and you were coming from your farm, and Yerushalayim is a much bigger city than you're used to. Whatever you say about Herod, not a great guy. Not a great guy. Killed most of his kids out of fear. It's like this crazy, almost, it sounds fictional, how paranoid he was. But even Chazal say, if you haven't seen his building, man, to be, I, I sometimes imagine what it was like to walk in from, I don't know, from Yafo, and you see this amazing city, and then you come and you see this amazing temple complex. And Herod, and, and by the way, he wasn't stupid. He worked with how religious he was is irrelevant. He made sure that the Beit HaMikdash was built. He made sure that all the workers were Kohanim. Because he, didn't want to, he wanted it done right. And imagine coming in, and you can still see these stairs if you go to the, to the dig. And you can still see where they're bricked up, where the walls, where the doors are, where they walked in. And you would see this amazing complex. And there in this empty space, that's very clever. So that you have this open, empty space in the middle of a dense city, and then the Beit HaMikdash in the middle. It must have been awe-inspiring. And the Beit HaMikdash itself, with its raising levels of Ketusha represented in the architecture, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And you can imagine a, you know, a rich Kohen sitting in his fancy villa with his ability to walk into work every day. It's not a bad commute. And you can go under Yeshivara Kotel and you can see that neighborhood today. I don't know how many of you have gone to that museum. You should. Right under Yeshivara Kotel, there's that little museum under the dorms. And walk around their neighborhood, these wealthy Kohanim in their homes. But they would come from here and walk to work. We know that the Beit HaMikdash, the second Beit HaMikdash, was destroyed by the Romans. That's their famous coin. That's a little more expensive on eBay. Judea Capta, we've conquered the Judeans with the Roman looking over the weeping Jewish woman. We know that Bar Kokhba had a three-year period of pushing back the Romans, and then it's destroyed. That's going to be for a very long time. With the destruction of Bar Kokhba, we know we don't have control. The dream of taking back control is going to be postponed a very long time. We don't know what the Khorban looked like, obviously. We have the Arch of Titus. And people say, oh, this really teaches you. I'm always a little skeptical what you can get from this picture. It's not a photograph. It's some guy carving it into a rock. That's a really slow way to take a picture. Like, I don't know how super accurate it was, but it is what it is. And it's, it's this famous image on the Arch of Titus of a crushing moment in our history. Again, things in our history that are preserved in stone are often things where we face loss. The Romans become Christian. And Queen Helena, Constantine's mother, actually makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where the priests explain to her where all the different events of Jesus' life took place in Jerusalem, or whatever. 
Were they making it up? Yeah, that's what we do. That's, that's what religious people often do. We don't know that it's for sure the right place, but they told her this is where he fell, and that's the Via Della Rosa, and here's where he was buried, blah, 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 blah. It's during this time under the Christian Romans that the Cardo was built. And when you look at the drawings on the wall of what people look like, that would be a nice city, a nice Christian Roman city. And it's also very useful if you're learning sugyot about Rishud Rabim and Rishud Yachid, how, do we, how they made all the shops look in those days. The Muslims come out of, the Arabs come out of the uh, Arabian Peninsula in the seventh century with this amazing wave of conquest and Islam spreads because of the Arabs beyond even where the Arabs get to, way out into Asia, up into Europe, all over Africa, certainly here. And here, when you look up at Harabaya today, what you're seeing are two buildings. And just for the sake of clarity, this is the Dome of the Rock, and this is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They're not the same thing, right? You know that? When you look at Harabayit, this is the Dome of the Rock, not a mosque. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, a mosque. That's why they call it the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And Harabayit already, 1,400 years ago plus, starts to look a lot like what you see today when you're walking you know, down to the Kotal and you look over, you see what it looks like up there? It already starts to look like that 1,400 years ago. Been there a while. You know what it looks like inside? I don't know, that's what, that's what it looks like inside on Google. You can just Google search what it looks like inside, yeah. I just can't see the board. I can try to be smaller, but I'm, it never works. When I met Dara, I tried, and it just never. This, by the way, is a basement. I don't know what that means. I don't know. That's the rock. That's a good question. That's a good question. So our tradition says it's where God started building the world. And the Muslims, this often happens, Lahavdil, in religions, when a new religion takes over an area, it treats the previous culture's thing as sacred. The Kaaba stone in Mecca was like that. By the way, when Avram gets to Beit El, he also shows respect there, even though it's not his. We show respect to other things. And, and then, you see in Islam and Christianity, they also adopt things that were already considered important before. Wait, what does that mean, the rock? What is it to them? What is it to What is it to them? I don't know. To us, it's the Evan Shasiyah. It's where, it's where the Kodesh Kodeshim was above. It's the center of where God created the world, where God started building the world from there. Depends on how, I'm not, I don't want to get into hashkafa and how you take a gadata and what, what, what's history and what's imagery and what's literature. I don't want to get that asked. I'm not here with my, I'm here with my history head on, not my uh, yarmulke on, so. I don't know. I just think it's interesting to look at. By the way, what's it look like inside the mosque? It looks like this. If you look at pictures of it the last few days, you'll see a lot more rocks and firecrackers because they're starting fights from in there. But it, that's, what, it, that's what the inside of a mosque looks like. They don't need chairs because they, they uh, lay on the floor. They sit on the floor. And they've got these fancy, beautiful fans. I don't know. I don't know. Just interesting because you don't get to see it in real life. Yeah. 
The Crusaders, I don't know why they don't have air conditioning. Maybe they do, and the fans just help. I don't know. There's an old Muslim tradition about air conditioning in mosques. No, I don't know what I'm talking about. That's not okay. Uh, the Crusaders take over for 100 years. They do leave some imprint on some of the buildings, but nothing very dramatic that you would see. Mu Muslims return, and here it's not just, by the way, yours here, Abusids, Mamelukes, these are all different groups. They're not all Arab, they are all Muslim, it's complicated, we're rushing through. But it's during this period of the, when the Muslims kick out, actually Saladin was a, uh, a Serb, I think, when, when, uh, when they come back, it's under them that the Ramban makes Aliyah, in terms of our period of history, after the Crusaders are thrown out. Marco Polo actually stopped in Yerushalayim on his travels. The plague came to Yerushalayim at that time, and that's the time that Avadya Bartonaro came to Yerushalayim and wrote his parish, and he's buried actually near Silwan. The Turks take over for a very long time, and that's when Yerushalayim, that we know, I'm talking about the old city, of course, really starts to look like the Yerushalayim that we know. They're the ones who build the walls that we're familiar with, including what we call Migdal David, which they also called it. Remember that to Muslims, they are, until the 20th century and conflict, they are very embracing of our history here. And of David being here, they call him Daoud. And Shomo, they call Suleiman. It's the, it's the, so they were very happy to see it. When I was your age, this is what the Chorva Synagogue looks like today. It looks more like this, but finished which was also a very controversial thing. There were all sorts of riots because people on Harabayat were arguing that if we're building this, that means we're gonna destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I don't know. This, what you're seeing nowadays, this past few weeks, is not new. It's also under the Ottomans that Yerushalayim gets too full and Jews start moving outside the city. Right across the valley, you have the first Jewish neighborhoods and homes, Yemin Moshe, where Jews start moving outside of the old city for the first time. Uh, I found this. That's Herzl's visit to Jerusalem, where he met Kaiser Wilhelm. Shar Yafo is busted open to let in Kaiser Wilhelm. That's why you have that like regular door at Shar Yafo, and then that giant hole, so that Kaiser Wilhelm's carriage could get through. And it's the, the Turks who build not only the walls, but the gates that we're familiar with today. Some actually we're not so familiar with, because we don't get to access them so much. We're familiar with Shar Ashvot. We're familiar with Shar Tzion. We're certainly familiar with Shar Yafo. And the others we don't get access to as often. Shar Arayo. This is Herod's Gate. Damascus Gate. The New Gate. And that's, the, I put the picture next to where they are in the city. This one, close that. Okay. That's the old stuff. That's a long time for a place that we made our capital. And remember, when people talk about Yerushalayim as the spiritual center of the Jews, that's true. And then they'll very quickly at these documentaries, you know, the mosaic of cultures, people. They'll quickly talk about how all the world's monotheisms connect to Jerusalem. Yeah, because they came from Judaism. And that's nice. And by the way, 
for, for tourists to want to visit. You, you see tourists from all over the world in Kolakavod, and when you see them and they look like they're wandering, you offer them, like, oh, I can help you find it. It's always amazing when you see an Israeli who like, walks into the old city and is like, where's the hotel? And you're like, I know where the hotel is. I'm, a, I'm some dumb kid from Australia. How come I know and you don't? But, 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 although there are religions that came out of or people adapted from Judaism that treat Yerushalayim as, as important, If you take away that issue of spirituality and kedusha, however you measure it, there is only one nation in the history of the world, one nation in the history of the world, that has made Jerusalem its capital. There's one. It is only central to one religion. It's holy to three. Okay, great. But let's leave religion aside. For 2,000 years, of us not being in control and making it our capital, no other people on earth made it their capital. Nobody. Nobody. <coughs> the British Mandate period, as you know, already the Zionist movement is well at work. And it calls itself the Zionist movement because it is political, the modern movement. It wants to reestablish a state with a capital. And so it chooses one of the nicknames, not only the names of one of the mountains of Yerushalayim, but a name that poetically refers to all of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim has to be at the center because you cannot have a nation state without a capital. When the secular Zionists, of course the religious Zionists want Yerushalayim for all sorts of reasons. But when David Ben-Gurion is looking towards Jerusalem, he's looking towards the next capital. Sharyafo, back in those days of the early British mandate. That's the Kotel area. It's a bit of a fuzzy picture. I just thought it was interesting to see how big the Kotel space was in those days. It was like this little alley behind the houses that Jews would go to. See who that is? Who's that? That's Rav Cook. Rav Cook speaking at the opening event of the Hebrew University on Harat Sophim. The creation of a Jewish university in Yerushalayim. The, the beginning of the infrastructure of creating something that will make Yerushalayim the functional center of Am Yisrael. Already old Jews have it wired in their head that if they're religious, it's the spiritual center. And it is. Good, good, good. But they're working already to make sure that it will be the cultural, intellectual, national, political center. We know that in 1948, 19, November of 1947, the UN says there should be a Jewish state and an Arab state in what's then called Palestine. And immediately after that, there is a civil war between Palestinians. Palestinian Arabs attack Palestinian Jews. And one of the biggest pushes of that civil war was to crush the community in Jerusalem through siege. And it was bad. They choked up what today is Kvishachat. They choked off the major roads into Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is a mountain city. It takes its resources from elsewhere, mostly from the coastline from Tel Aviv. 
And so, in addition to the war being started in Yerushalayim, that's the bombing of the Sukhnut, which functioned as like a proto-Knesset at that time. Today it's a bureaucratic weird thing where I guess I work sort of. That's the, the um, explosion at what was then called the Palestine Press, which today is called the Jerusalem, the Palestine Post, which today is called the Jerusalem Post. And the trick that they tried was to cut off the road to Jerusalem. By the way, the military leaders told Ben-Gurion, forget it, forget it. It's too hard. Let's just help the Jews in Jerusalem get out, and we'll have a nation state along the coastline, and we'll give up on Jerusalem. And Ben-Gurion said, that's ridiculous. You cannot have a state without its capital, and the capital has to be Jerusalem. We cannot make a capital anywhere else. And they weren't sure it would work. They were not at all confident they could get any of Jerusalem in the 48 war. They didn't know what they were going to name the country. And in the weeks before the declaration of the state on May 14th, they were arguing what to call it. Now, I'm not saying this was one of the better choices. But one of the ideas thrown out was, let's, because it was, we, the Zionists, have created it, let's call the new country the state of Siona. Not necessarily the best name. But it was thrown out because they said, what if we don't end up with any of Jerusalem? It would be crazy to call the state Siona and Jerusalem, we just have a capital in Tel Aviv. The state was declared in Tel Aviv. Jerusalem was very shaky. By the end of the war, by the way, when you go to Shartzion and you see those bullet holes, that's from one of the last battles where the Etzel, the Haganah, and the Lehi each attacked the old city as a last attempt to try to get the old city into what, would be, what was, at that point, Medinat Yisrael, and that battle failed. That battle failed. The, the Jordanians on the walls opened a massive hail of bullets on the Jews. The Jewish fighters said, oh man, if they're shooting that much in their first volley, they must have an endless store of ammunition, and we're almost out at this point. And so they retreated, and they said, we'll have to let the Jordanians hold the old city. Later, we found out that those soldiers on the wall had panicked. They used up all their ammunition in that first volley, and then they could have walked in. It's a very strange story. Yerushalayim was a divided city. It's hard for us to imagine. It's easier for you to imagine than other groups. If you go down, once you leave Shartzion and you go to like where Kever David is, that area outside of, of Shartzion, that was Israel. If you go down Derech Hebron, you know where MMY is? And then across the street there's that ice cream place and, uh, and uh, Burgerim and all that. MMY was Israel, ice cream place, Jordan. Jordanian control. If you go north, that's the old city. And it's kind of on the Ravkov line. If you go north and you look to the east, Jordan, Sepharad Sophim, which we help. The fights over the neighborhood now in Sheikh Jarrah about the eviction, that's the neighborhood here. In between Israel and Israel, right in the Jordan part, that's why they put Arabs to live there. That's, the whole, that's a whole other issue. Why that's going on? That's 
the Israelis and the Jordanians drawing what would be a ceasefire line, not an official border because they never made peace. Here's a Jordanian soldier, Israeli soldier, sharing a cigarette. Sometimes it could be very friendly. Sometimes there could be uh, sniper fire from the Jordanian side. Here's in the Meisharim area, where the wall was the border of Israel. Where inside is Meisharim, and the other side is no man's land leading to Jordan. And it's dangerous. <coughs> Zehirut means? Al-Telech means? And here's the one hard vocabulary word. What is Salafim? Salafim. Salafim. Snipers. Be careful. You can't walk down the middle of the street because snipers can shoot you. And it's hard for us to imagine Yerushalayim only being the new stuff. Going up, I don't know, if you could go up to the roof of the King David, you could look at the old city, but you couldn't go in. That's a very strange idea for us who are so used to Yerushalayim being the old city because that's really Yerushalayim. There's greater Jerusalem of the modern city. But we were shut out. We were shut out. It is difficult for me to explain what it felt like in 1967 because I wasn't there. I was born a year after this war. But I was, but my the, the older generation than me, and I've lived in the States, the older generation living in the States was still emotionally gobsmacked by that event. And I'm not going to go into the whole complicated history at this time, but basically the Soviet Union instigated the Arabs in 1967. It's time to wage a war to destroy Israel. And Egypt took the lead, biggest, most powerful Arab country, decided they were going to press that, and got Jordan and Syria to agree to follow their command. Whatever we do in Egypt, you have to do in Jordan and Syria. Israelis, through indirect ways, told the Jordanian Syrians, don't, don't get involved. Right now, we have a problem with Egypt, stay out of it. And you can see, other countries also agreed not to take direct fight in the battle, but to send other troops to help the Jordanians and the Syrians and the Egyptians. And people looked at this map and they were terrified. The rhetoric in Arabic on the radio was, the time has come to wipe Israel off the map once and for all, to drive the Jews into the sea. It, it's, so you hear stories from Israel. You hear about Gan Saker, about public areas in every city being laid aside for emergency cemeteries for the dead. People painting over the headlights on their car and keeping night darkness so that, God forbid, you know, they can't be aerially bombarded and targeted. There were stories in the Israeli media about Holocaust survivors who committed suicide because they didn't want to fall into, Israel, into enemy hands again. We're not doing that again. There was a general growing panic. Yitzhak Rabin, we didn't know this at the time, had a panic attack and had to be hospitalized for 25 hours in the weeks before the Six-Day War. The Secretary of Defense was Moshe Dayan, got on the radio. He was a good general. He was not a good public speaker. And he said, 
well, I think we can be confident, you know, and uh, we have reason to believe that if engaged, we will succeed. And the Israeli population was terrified. Oh, no. Oh, no. And you can turn your Israeli radio, especially if you're a Mizrahi Jew who understands Arabic, you can hear what they're saying in Jordan and Egypt on the radio. And there's this feeling of being surrounded. And the UN, which had promised to protect Israel from Egypt, pulled out of the Suez Canal, and the Egyptian army pulled up onto Israel's border. The prime minister at the time was Levi Eshkol. He desperately didn't want to fight this war. His generals, like most generals, was like, just let us go, man. Just let us go. Just let us off the chain. We'll go in and we'll, we'll, we'll kill him. Levi Eshkol's like, I don't want to be a prime minister over a war that could have I don't know how many dead. And he begged all around the world. He sent diplomats all around the world, country after country after country. Can you intervene? Can you help? Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, why didn't anybody help? On the other hand, he sent a delegation to President Johnson. How about you go to President Johnson? President Johnson said, look, I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. Let, be invaded. Let Egypt invade you. And after you're invaded, I'll come in and help you. He was like, what? Well, because then you don't look like you started. It'll be easier for me with the Soviet Union to say I was defending you. It'll make America look better if you just guys get invaded first. Can you do that? No. No. And on the one hand, you're like, well, why didn't they? But why would they? If you were an American parent or a British parent, and your kid was going off to fight to protect Israel from Egypt, would you want, if you were, I don't know, from Canada or Australia, would you want your kid to die to protect Israel from Egypt? The whole point of Zionism is Hashem protects us when we stand up for ourselves. Nobody else, no people are going to protect us. So it was left in Israel's hands. Here's just a couple of quotes in case you think I'm exaggerating. Our basic objective is the destruction of Israel. The Arab people want to fight. Our goal is clear to wipe Israel off the map. That's just two examples of the kind of rhetoric. Now, we live in a, an age where things can be filmed. And so I want to show you, you know, Israel preempted. Israel is going to hit Egypt first. Egypt is going to create a siege on Israel by closing our shipping routes to the south at Sharm el-Sheikh. That's an act of war. Israel says, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And so what I've done is I've made some film clips, uh, and some of you who take my class have seen some of this, about the opening volley of the war, how Israel takes Egypt essentially out of the war. And remember, Israel warned Jordan and Syria, whatever happens with Egypt, you stay out of it. Jordan and Syria will not stay out of it. And in particular, when Jordan starts shelling Jerusalem, the Israelis say, that's it. So I'm going to show you now, this, this, the, the film that I'm going to show you was assembled mostly in the 90s. Some of it, and you'll see where I, I indicated it, the Israeli government in the 90s released military footage of the war in 67. Some of it I put in here of conquering Yerushalayim. Some of it is from a history documentary that you can still watch on YouTube. 
Because it was in the late 90s, they interviewed the people who were involved. So you will hear from Jews and Arabs from, from the war. I'm going to show you what the first few hours of the war were like. Then I'm going to show you what conquering Yerushalayim was like. Then you're going to see that footage of the Israeli military, of the soldiers going into Jerusalem. Before you ask, is the Israeli military video actual filming of the actual battle? No. What armies do after a battle is they have soldiers sort of do a little run through so they can film what it, where it happened and how it looked. But there was no cameraman actually when the bullets are flying because that would be bad. But I want you to stop and think about how cool it would how amazing it would be. We have the books of the Maccabees in this stuffy language describing what it was like when Yehuda HaMaccabee went into Jerusalem. We have film from like an hour later. You can see what the streets look like. You'll see Rav Gorin coming in and blowing a chauffeur. You'll see the soldiers walking around. That in itself, I sometimes wonder, should we say hello for it? That we get to, like Rav Shames was saying earlier, you know, we weren't there. I, I wasn't born then. But if you, can, if you can put yourself in the shoes of those, of Am Yisrael that was in such a panic, such a panic before the war started, and then six days later, what the, the relief, the wave of happiness. This video gives you a little bit of a sense, and you can actually look at the actual people who were there, that this miracle happened through. The generals chose the morning of June 5th for the attack. Leaving behind only 12 fighters to defend Israel, 180 aircraft took off for Egypt. Their target was 45 minutes away. We observed total radio silence. We flew at the height of the waves for about 15 minutes. We flew low over the sand dunes. We crossed the Suez Canal at Kantara and entered the Delta. As we flew over the Delta, farmers waved to us. They probably thought we were Egyptian. Most of the Israeli squadrons flew out to sea far to the west. They had extra fuel tanks to enable them to approach Egypt's air bases from an unexpected direction. At exactly 0745, we pulled up to 6,000 feet. I looked down and saw the MiGs glinting on the edges of the runway. The pilots were sitting inside the cockpits. I knew we had caught them by surprise. This is real. The, air, the airplane films as it the goes. The Israelis began their attack by destroying the runways to prevent the Egyptian aircraft from taking off. The few that did get off the ground were no match for the Israeli fighters. I got a call from one of the Air Force chiefs. He said, no fun, no fun. I said, yes, sir. He said, our airfields are being attacked. I said, what the hell are you talking about? 
He said, our airfields are being attacked. I said, our airfields? He said, the airfields in the Sinai are being attacked. I said, all the Sinai airfields? Tell me it's not true. And he said, believe me, all the airfields are being attacked. I hung up. The phone rang again. It was another commander. Wait for it. He said, we're being attacked. So I said to myself, well, something must be going on. But I was all alone. By the time Marshal Amer's taxi got him back to headquarters, Egypt's air force was destroyed. Marshal Amir was panicking. He told the Air Force Chief to implement the counterattack plan. The Air Force Chief replied, How can I? I have no aircraft. In the Sinai, Egypt had three times as many tanks as Israel, but with no air cover, their situation was dire. Marshal Amer didn't wait for his chief of staff to plan a retreat. He simply picked up the phone and gave the order himself. The order was withdraw back across the canal. Leave the artillery behind. Marshal Amer's order was a disaster. With no plan, his retreating units could not protect each other. The Israelis gave chase. Our tanks had Egyptian tanks in front and behind them. We attacked them from the ground and from the air. Thousands were destroyed. They were all burning. It was a terrible sight. Three hundred thirty-eight Israelis were killed. But the Egyptian dead numbered fifteen thousand. We did not plan to take Jerusalem or the West Bank. We did not plan to take the Golan. On the 5th, we sent a telegram through the Americans to King Hussein, telling him that the war was between us and the Egyptians. If Jordan stayed up, nothing would happen. But at about 10.30, he started shelling Jerusalem. Teddy Kolak, the mayor of Jerusalem, asked me at the command post what he should do with the children in the kindergartens and schools. In the command post, we looked at each other. We said, this is not nice. We'll take on Hussein. The deputy chief of staff called me. He said, Uzi, you are authorized to enter the old city. You have to be quick and use your head. 
It took the Israelis 10 hours of bitter street fighting to defeat the Jordan Legion soldiers defending the old city. Once the troops had broken through to the Wailing Wall, keeping the city united under Israel's rule became the basic goal of the government. Syria, they had taken the Golan Heights. From Jordan, the West Bank, and the old city of Jerusalem. From Egypt, Gaza, and the Sinai. With so much land to trade, Israel had its best chance ever for peace. Israelis flocked to the old city, 
them, the victory was a deliverance from destruction. To us, as Rav Shaves was saying earlier, it kind of recedes into the background of just normal life. But we, it's, it's a triple thing that made this day so enormously impactful. It's this reversal. People around the world really thought Israel stood no chance. Israel won the war decisively within six days. People were worried Israel was going to be crushed and the Jews driven into the sea. Israel triples in size. And then, of course, there's the reclaiming of Yerushalayim. I've been told by a student of Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk that when they came to him after they conquered it, and they said, it worked. This time, you know, the Tzadchanim went in, Saha went in, and they conquered the old city. The students said, Rav Tzvi Yehuda said, yeah, of course. They said, why, of course? He said, in 48, Saha still wasn't united in Yerushalayim. When they tried in 48, in the last weeks of the war, to, to take Yerushalayim, they came as the Etzel Haganah and the Lachi. Yerushalayim doesn't open her gates when we come as separate groups. But when we came united as Saha, of course this city opened its gates for us. Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, we always make, you sometimes hear people quote, you know, oh, Hakoto Be'adenu. They walked right onto Harabaya and said, Harabaya Be'adenu. That was the announcement of Motagur on the radio that went out. And sometimes we misremember it. But yeah, they were very excited to have. So Harabaya was conquered, or was it just. Still conquered. But, like, you don't I've been there. I mean, a lot of people go there. <laughs> it's, we, okay, on Harabayat, we have sovereignty. But out of an abundance of, let's call it Hachnasar Orchim, we allow, because there are Muslim buildings up there, uh, they very quickly, the Israeli government, decided to let a Jordanian religious council be the administrators of, of Harabayat, of the religious activity up there. So, I mean, Chayalim are there, police up there, Jews walk up there all the time. But it's, it's, think of it as like in your neighborhood, there's a board at the shul and a rabbi that runs the shul, but it's still within whatever city, you know what I mean? So we have sovereignty still on Harabayat, but they, they administer it, and there's all this sensitivity that, that you can, and there are people who are pushing to allow Jews to do more things, they're pushing, people pushing for Jews to do fewer things. It's complicated, but, it's Israel. Yeah. Um, when we conquered land that wasn't necessarily part of Israel, how did that work? What does that mean, part of Israel? Like, the goal, was the Golan Heights originally part of Israel? When we talk about the historical... I, I don't know that the historical... I mean, yeah, a lot... If you're talking about the historical from Bayerish and Bayashani, so you're talking about up into Lebanon, out into Syria, out into Jordan. The land that we conquer... We're conquering in war. I don't think the generals are worried about the biblical or. No, I'm talking about like in terms of chutz and not chutz in terms of holidays or, or just the halachic um, aspect of living in Israel. Does that come into conflict? No. I mean, there's a machloket about like all the way down south. Is that really Eretz Israel? But pretty much everywhere else, I, I, I'm not. Whatever. Again, I'm not. I'm not talking to you now. In. Uh, I, I think once we. I mean. Through Kibush, I think you should be, but that, that's a whole other Soviet. But, but yeah, 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 don't worry about it. If you're in the Golan, you can keep on there, you're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's hard to explain. By the way, the generals were not very surprised. I told you at the beginning, they were telling Levi Eshko will win. 
By the way, <laughs> one of the things President Johnson told Abba Ibn was, when he said, let America invade you, he said, uh, let Egypt invade you, he said, if Egypt invades you, you can beat them in two weeks. But if you strike first, you can beat them in one week. Here, I'll put my uh, kippah back on. What do we mean when we say it's a miracle from Hashem? Here, I just showed you the brilliant strategy of Tzahal, of the Air Force, of going around and hitting from the other side at the perfect time. What we mean is if you think all that genius planning, all that bravery, all that courage, all that heroism, if you think that works, that there aren't a million, million, million things out of your control that lined up perfectly those six days, that's Hashem. That's Hashem. The fact that the Jordanian warning to the Egyptians was in a code that had expired and the Egyptians couldn't read it, so many things. So many things. You don't have to diminish the greatness of Saha in order to see how amazing the nace is from Hashem. On the contrary, it makes you so proud that Hashem chose these people. I mean, imagine how they feel to be the people who functioned as the Ritzon Hashem on earth. It's an amazing, amazing thing. When I was a kid, this is what the map of Israel looked like. In our classroom walls, that's what Israel looked like, this big bottom section. The what? Until Israel gave it to Egypt for the peace treaty, which is still holding. Menachem Begin handed it, uh, the whole Sinai back to Egypt. Not Gaza and the West Bank, we, we still hold the Golan. Uh, Israel very quickly is going to treat Yerushalayim as part of Medina Yisrael, all of Yerushalayim as opposed to most of the West Bank, that they don't do that. The Golan eventually also, they're going to treat as part of Eretz Yisrael. I mean, not Yisrael, I should say. But the entire Sinai, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, Yudan Shamron. It's a crazy thing. And of course, Municipal Yerushalayim with an enormous Arab population, most of whom, although Israel treats it as Medina Israel, don't want Israeli citizenship, and so they have what's called permanent residence status. And we're very used to, we kind of take it for granted, the fact that the modern city and the old city are now one city. It just feels so normal that you can walk out of Shar Yafo right into the modern city. You can walk right through Mamila into modern Jerusalem. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> there's nothing more amazing than the fact that you guys get to take it for granted. But there's a part of you that also still should realize how astonishing it is. The last time, before 1948, that an event happened to Am Yisrael, but we had a cause to say a national halal was? 1948 is Yom Atzmu. Before 1948, what's the previous time? Hanukkah. Within, not you are my generation, but within my parents' generation, we've had these two new events, two new halals in the year. Stop and think what that means. 
to live in an age where there's a new hour. And I'll tell you, it's a silly story, but I'll tell you a silly story about how it makes me feel. First of all, you know that famous picture? Yeah. You know that every, every couple years they go back and they take updated? As far as I know, this is only a few years ago. Is it, is it so cute because old men are so cute? Or it's so cute because this is a little bit of family picture, isn't it? Right? He's like fourth place in the Olympics. Yeah. No, but this is... This becomes a family picture for them, but it's also a family picture for us. We see, we, this is, you see your parents, your grandparents, most of whom, so here's my silly little story that I think of when I think about what Yom HaTzimur Yom Yerushalayim means, what it means to go 2,000 years. Okay, so when I was a little kid, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my family used to drive down every year to Texas when my aunt lived in Dallas. So one winter, we had a school break. And my father had work. Because you know how the yeshiva schedule leaves you off at a different time? Than, so he couldn't take off from work. We were off on the yeshiva, the day school winter break. So my mother drove down with me and my brother. There's two of us. On the way down, my brother got sick. By the time we got to Texas, the two of us had the flu. And I don't remember this very well, because when you were a little kid with fever, it's all very fuzzy. But I do remember my mother was like super stressed out, and she was crying, because she just felt. And I, 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 I don't even know. Sometimes like in your own memory, you're like, am I making this up? But I, I remember it so clearly. I remember waking up in the middle of the night. You know, like when the when the Tylenol wears off, and you feel, and I just felt so hot, and I, and I, but I was wide awake. And I remember hearing um, the, a knock at the, I remember hearing the grown-ups talking, and when you're a little kid, you're like, first of all, grown-ups talk so much when you're a little kid, and you're like, what are you doing? You're not playing, you're just talking. And I heard them talking, and I heard a knock at the door, and my uncle Egal got up and said, who is it? And my father said, it's Meyer, that's my father's name. Egal said, Meyer who? Father said, Meyer Antibur. And uh, he had heard my mother's voice on the phone and he told his boss, I have, to, I have to take off. I know I can't, but I have to. Sorry. Sorry. So I was, I heard my father's voice. And I remember I just wanted to see him. So I did that like shimmy thing. I couldn't get out of bed, I was so weak. So I kind of shimmied and kind of fell out of the bed and I knew they didn't hear me. So on my elbows, I squished into the hallway and my aunt saw me. She goes, Michael, what are you doing on the bed? Well, I probably shouldn't have told this story. <laughs> Well, I mean, my father passed away in 86, so I miss him a lot. 
Dayaba saw me, so he scooped me up and he kissed me and he put me back in bed and he, he tucked me in and he pat me you know, on my head until I fell asleep. I'll never forget that feeling of being scooped up by my Yama. That's what, that's what this is. That's what Yom Ma'ud is, that's what Yom Yerushalayim is. That's what we say halal for. 2,000 years is a long time. And we didn't. We didn't give up. We knew he was there. And then suddenly to feel scooped up like that, to feel embraced like that, doesn't mean that life isn't going to have hard times, there aren't going to be more troubles. But sometimes it's okay to just stop and hug back, you know? Sometimes that's okay. And appreciate what we have. It's almost impossible to take for granted. It's almost impossible to take for granted what it means. And not feel incredibly spoiled, because who in the world are we that we get to walk around, that you guys get to sleep inside your shrine, your you get to be, spend more hours unconscious than our forefathers ever saw in their life. And look what we did to you, Rishonim. <coughs> By the way, I recommend, whether you end up living here or not, take your own pictures. You're all walking around with these cameras. Obviously, take pictures of everything in Eretz Israel. But when you're out, keep pictures with you. And you're going to be out walking and art. Take a second, all the dancing, and you don't want to get too swept up with the kids from wherever. Okay. I, I, I'm a big believer, and I know everyone says, be in the moment, don't take pictures. I know, I know. And maybe it's because I'm an introvert, but also take pictures. Like, don't lose the moment, it's true. But also, grab a picture, take it with you. When you're out at night and you see those lights, and you go, I can't believe I'm in Yerushalayim. Take that picture. And it stays. When you're walking to the park, oh, lions. Oh, you have lions. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. That's a gas station. Can you imagine? No, but think about it. In his wildest dreams, David HaMelech, if you ask David HaMelech, what would Yerushalayim be? He never could have conceived of a city that we walk around every day like it's the most normal thing in the world. It's an age of miracles. Every minute is a miracle. Every step you take. So I'm a big believer, and I know you get the opposite advice. Sometimes, grab a picture. Just as you're walking. These are pictures, most of these are actually walking in and out to teach in Harova. You just you stop and you go, oh my gosh. Yeah. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere. When Chazal say that you know nine-tenths of the beauty are here, it's true. You just have to not walk by it. And it's not always on Yom Yerushalayim. While you're here, catch, this is already Yamin Moshe. Oh, that's me on Harabai. <laughs> See? 
By the way, I was there on one of those days where they yell at you. Allahu Akbar. Allah, all these ladies all you know, covered up and everything. To which I'm always like, yeah, all right, I know. Like, we were, yeah, we agree. And, and, and some of the younger guys I was with, Allah Akbar means God is great. Yeah, I know. Of course he is. Like, why wouldn't he be? Like, of course he's God. Like, duh. And I was with some of these younger guys who were like really like traumatized. I'm like, you're traumatized because a bunch of crazy ladies yelled at you? Like, we have Ribonut. You know, there were Jews who lived in places where they weren't scared of being yelled at. They were scared of much, much worse. Anyway. It's also not only a bracha that we can look at these films of these photographs that were taken in 67. It's an amazing thing that you walk around with a little rectangle in your pocket that can take amazing pictures and you can show people, look, look where I was. I don't know. That's it. That's, these are the door. That's how you walked up onto Harabai. You can walk right up to it. It's crazy. You're going to take a picture of my picture? It's okay. You know what? I am going to make fun of you. But I also get it. Do you feel it? Isn't it crazy that we all feel this love for a place where we didn't grow up? Isn't it crazy that we feel home? That's not an ace in and of itself. So, that was at Latrun. I just slipped in because it came out really good. Huh? No, not the way you went. I just thought when I read that was at my nephew's uh, Tekas Hashpa'a. But, Yomat's uh, Tamea. And remember that feeling. And when you feel, when you feel that privilege of that hug. Remember that wanting that feeling of wanting to hug Hashem back because we can. Hug some hand. Thank you very much. It's amazing. Remember, uh, it's 530, 545. Please be seated. I want to talk about Yushalayim Tosav. I'm going to complete some of the, uh, the, the, the issues that uh, Michael was talking about. I'll start with a couple of minutes about that. 545. Is this yours? Yeah. Is it yours? Oh, oh. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, we're taking it. They're fine. Sure. Oh. Is it? Is it?